Hello everyone, welcome to the Design Related Podcast, where we talk to our favorite designers about their origin story, what they're working on now, and everything in between. I am Francisco Hui. And I'm Mike McDearman. Today we're talking with Seattle-based designer Izzy Sahorian, who's currently a designer at Google. So let's get started. So thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, just wanted to kick us off by you know, telling us a little bit about what life is like at Google, what kind of specific projects you're working on. Cool. Uh, my name is Izzy Zahorian. I'm 28 years old, and I've been working at Google for the past three years. Uh, today is my last day at Google, and I'm currently on a team called Jigsaw, which is working on all kinds of interesting and important issues related to uh, censorship and uh, freedom of speech and like the tension between those, as well as uh, privacy and security issues related to um, anything uh, having to do with digital threats and security. And primarily, we've been focusing geopolitically for the past couple of years. But as we continue to do the work, we realize that anybody can be affected by digital threats, such as like um, phishing and doxing and uh, having malware installed on your computer and things like that. It's just more prevalent in certain places, and certain people have more to lose. But I think the focus on online harassment in the recent times has uh, kind of re repositioned our thinking a little bit to think that this might be not just a geopolitical issue, but something that's pretty close to home. Yeah. Those seem like very uh, intense topics. Can you talk about how they manifest themselves in, in projects? Yeah. It. Uh, great question. How do they manifest themselves in projects? Do you mean emotionally or do you mean... Um, what does a project look like when, when, when you're tackling this, these issues? Yeah, so projects can come from um, two different um, ideation paths. One is through formative user research, we'll, where we will actually plan trips to places that have either interesting geopolitical tensions, or there's freedom of speech issues related to like journalists uh, being jailed or not being able to say what they think. And we'll just talk to people and uh, basically start with a user problem and work from there, which is my favorite method of doing things because you know that you're doing something real um, and it was spawned by an actual human need. So that's my preferred method, of course, as a UX designer. But we also have another path, which is um, around technological insights. So sometimes uh, there's like really interesting technological um, uh, cocktails, I guess, that we think about, it, like pertaining to, I'm trying to think of a good example here. Um, well, sometimes we'll piggyback off of previous ideas, like the one box, for instance, we've done several one box iterations for different issues, um, like human trafficking is one of them. And uh, currently, we're thinking about one for like malware or digital security generally. So sometimes it'll, we'll piggyback off of that where it just totally makes sense to make sure that a wider set of people and issues are covered. Um, but yeah, so it, it's pretty, it's actually pretty startup-y, I guess you could say. It's pretty chaotic at Jigsaw, but in the best possible way where everyone's really passionate and just kind of kicking off their ideas and seeing things through to the end. So it's nice. Could, could you go into the, the one box? What, what's that about? Yeah, um, the one box, well, the um, one box, uh, for those who aren't familiar, is basically when you type in a Google search and the first result has this little um, box around it. 
And that is a specific Google feature that has been designed because somebody has been searching for that term so much that it makes sense to kind of bubble up this universal type of information. So for human trafficking, for instance, there's a lot of different hotlines. Um, but there's one that's quite reputable. And um, a colleague of mine, CJ Adams, used to work in uh, the human trafficking industry and really saw the need to make sure that when people are searching for like help, like my boyfriend is a pimp or uh, like help, I am in this awful relationship or something like that, that this one box pop up as the first thing you see so that you don't you know, in those situations, you have really high stress and um, you're probably really afraid to, f for any of your trace whatsoever. So it's really important that the first thing that people see is like a gigantic number of the, the place, the single source that they should call. So just kind of stuff like that. We're always thinking about the mental states that people might be in when they're experiencing a crisis or leading up to a crisis. And we try to design based off of that. And um, yeah. <laughs> Are you able to give us any examples of one of these projects that kind of started with, you know, a trip out, kind of exploring some of the human needs around these issues that, that ended up manifesting in a project? Yeah, great question. Um, <laughs> I can give you an example of the opposite, actually. <laughs> All right. Uh, there, there, sometimes we make assumptions about things because we just don't know. And that's been one of my favorite parts about being on the team is everyone's so excited and has this great energy, but we're all based in New York City. So sometimes when you go out and field test things you've been working on, you realize that they don't make sense at all. And so for one project, for example, it's a University of Washington project that we also uh, have a part in. It's called UProxy, and it basically gives anybody uh, free access to the internet through a friend of theirs. And we're specifically targeting people um, who, whose internet is censored in various parts of the world. And Turkey was a market that we were super interested in because of like viability and the need. There's, there's very low freedom of the press there. And they tend to have internet blackout periods pretty frequently whenever people are at, you know, uh, like at Taksim Square or something like that, some, something will happen or s some kind of activist movement will happen and then all of a sudden fa you can't log on to Facebook or you can't access Twitter. So um, we were like, this totally makes sense. This is the perfect market for us to try to get UProxy off of the ground um, as one of our core markets. And when I visited, I did a lot of um, user tests with students and journalists and activists and various uh, uh, people uh, that seemed to be a really good fit for it. And what we found was that because this was such a common problem of the internet going out, people in Turkey had a plethora of options already, like so many VPNs, so many proxy tools. They had so many different ways of getting access to the internet because the problem is so uh, usual. Like it happens so frequently that people just um, have a lot of tools they can use already. So that was an interesting insight of people just saying, how is this any better than the stuff I've already been using? Because it's a really interesting situation where the government thinks that you know, th throttling speeds or like turning off Facebook for a little bit is enough, but they don't seem savvy enough to be blocking VPNs at this point or really understand what it means to circumvent internet censorship. So, um, but great, great question. <laughs> I'm trying to think, I actually haven't had the experience yet of, um, traveling to find a real user need, but definitely um, we hosted an online harassment lab r recently last year. 
uh, which myself and a couple people organized, and it was real, is all I have to say. Um, we brought in people who had been targets of um, mob harassment specifically, so like when you post something on Twitter and a bunch of people dogpile you or threaten you or threaten to release your uh, public, non-public documents, like uh, your social security number and things like that, basically people who had experienced this kind of nasty stuff on the internet, um, just to learn more about what we didn't know, because we didn't understand the problem and we thought that it was important. So we hosted this lab, brought all these people in who had been targeted for various things. Um, and afterwards, uh, we got a little bit of a taste of our own medicine and uh, uh, we got trolled pretty hard. Uh, we posted a picture with the participants of the online harassment lab and so many of these people's uh, adversaries started uh, coming at us and somehow they got the people's names who hosted it. I was one of the people's names and so I specifically was targeted for retweeting and then unretweeting one of our participants and there was a, sh a schmear campaign against me to try to get me fired from Google. And they contact, they tried to contact Eric Schmidt and Larry Page's Twitter handle and all these people. And um, uh, basically, if you Google my name now, there's this schmear article that's like the third result on my page. And same with on Google Images. And so that was super real for me. And um, just all the feelings of stress and anxiety I had about trying to make sure that my digital security was up to par and talking my parents through how to turn on two-step authentication uh, on all their apps and making sure that their passwords were different and that kind of thing and making sure that my domain name wasn't tracking back to my home address so that people couldn't take next steps was totally terrifying and made me feel super vulnerable. So this has been a space that I am the most passionate about recently and that I've been trying to focus on. And what I really care about is that, um, is thinking about like what people stand to lose from this. Like I, if you think about a person like me, I was a Google employee who had a pretty good support system and I didn't get fired and not everybody is the same way. I also had enough savings to where if I did get fired, I would be okay. Um, and I just think about certain other people who haven't been so lucky when they've been targeted with stuff like this. And I, uh, yeah, I just think there's a lot more we can do. <laughs> and we've been learning that harassment is gendered and it's also race related. It has to do with the religion that you have or what you share. There's so many things that can put you at greater risk of harassment. And it can get really heavy sometimes thinking about all that stuff. But um, uh, so basically, after the online harassment lab, we started looking into it from a research science point of view. And we've recently been collaborating with Wikipedia on something called Detox, which you can, it's actually available right now. Um, but we've been collaborating with them uh, using their data uh, to try to understand why certain people are publishing to Wikipedia and why certain people aren't. Um, and turns out it's a gendered thing where it's, uh, it's gendered and uh, kind of race-based where it's the majority of people who are pushing edits are white males. And when you think about the demographic of the world, it's not necessarily all white males. And Wikipedia is the sixth uh, largest website uh, or sixth most 
visited website in the world. So making sure that you have a representation of diverse points of view on various issues, like even things like Barack Obama versus like Barack Hussein Obama and things like that. You just want to make sure that you've got diverse points of view uh, represented when you have such a, what's the word, like neutral platform like Wikipedia, which people go to as kind of a factual thing. And really, it's, it's incredibly biased right now. So that's just an example of something where we didn't totally understand the problem. Then we got really familiar with certain aspects of the problem. And then we continued to um, work on it and try out different solutions and see who else might be affected by the problem. So, so this is fascinating and terrifying because <laughs> this, this is a sort of problem that really anyone could be a victim of nowadays. And I'm thinking more recently about journalists that are covering um, candidates and being targeted for their views and then going having to deal with similar smear campaigns and you know what that does to your online presence and also uh, you know very physically kind of puts you at risk of having people potentially come after you know where you live things like that um, so what what what's kind of being done in this space right now um, but and and are there any things that that people can do individually to kind of protect themselves a little bit more. Yeah, there's a lot of great work that's being done in the space. And a lot of it is actually pretty grassroots. That's started by people who have experienced it themselves. Zoe Quinn is a really amazing resource. She started something called Crash Override Network, which is a support system for people who have experienced this kind of thing. So it could be all the way from uh, people posting a really awful schmear website against you, all the way up to people sending SWAT teams to your parents' house and releasing your credit card information and social security numbers and things like that. So she has been really fantastic. She had started a nonprofit to help um, help people out during that time, both from a sense of emotional support, but also trying to gather data and screenshots about the incident as it's happening so that it can be taken to law enforcement and uh, charges can be pressed. But there's a really major issue where uh, there's a major technological lag between law enforcement and kind of the rest of the world, where a lot of policemen have never heard of Twitter, do not understand the super real consequences of being like digitally harassed and kind of like what happens after you have a mob of people who are bored and have a lot of time out against you. So um, in terms of prevention, I highly, highly recommend setting up two-step authentication on every app you can. You can do it on Facebook, you can do it on Twitter, um, and you also want to have unique passwords. So that's super important. Um, and what two-step authentication does, if for people who don't know, is um, when you log in to uh, whatever you're logging into, you'll have this second set that's normally physical, like getting a text message on your phone that you'll then use to enter in this unique code. So if somebody's hacking you, like from overseas or some somebody who's like targeting you digitally, if they don't have the physical device, then they can't get into your stuff. So they're gonna have to like physically steal your phone before you can call like Apple support or whatever <laughs> to turn your phone off in order to get traction. So that's a really easy and powerful thing to do. They're also releasing something called security keys, which are, I think, out now, which you can plug into your laptop. And basically, you log in, and it'll ask you to tap the security key. And it's, again, this kind of like physical presence kind of security that's super helpful. Um, other than that, I, I learned. <laughs> 
Kind of the hard way, I think. Um, well, I learned after the fact that when you register a domain, there's something called Whois, which is this legal information that anybody can find the address, the home address that you have listed with your domain. Anybody. And I think that I think there's probably good reasoning behind this and that it came from a good place, but it puts so many people at the internet at risk and there's no free way to legally step around it. So what you have to do is pay for an extra service that'll be like five bucks a year or something to essentially use a proxy company to act as your address. So if somebody wants to buy your domain, like xyz.com, who you're paying five bucks to, will be the address listed and they'll be the holder of your address. And that's what I'm paying for currently. But these are just a few things that I wish that I knew ahead of time, um, as well as being super mindful about what you post all the time is important because for people who want to dig up dirt on you, they'll screenshot anything. Um, but then also at the end of the day, just trying not to have your whole life online, I think has been really important for me because when I got trolled, I basically self-censored myself because I just didn't want to deal with it. And I think what was really empowering was this idea that I still had a life. <laughs> My whole life's not on the internet and that's really important for me. And I think I would just encourage everybody who's got a lot of investment online to make sure you're investing in whatever it is that makes you happy offline too, so that if everything hits the fan and now when people Google search you, it seems like you'll never be able to get a job again, you're still chill. <laughs> I've got so many feelings about the whole thing, but uh, it was a good learning experience. Yeah. So, so, so <laughs> <laughs> this is getting deep. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it seems like the the work that you're doing it can um, part of it could be like education part of it could be providing tools or like the one box um, it's not just necessarily designing UI because um, there's a lot of you know, online offline experiences that are happening right yeah exactly a ton of the work I've been doing is actually advocacy within Google for like these different types of people and different needs and so recently I just sent a presentation to the YouTube team that uh, the YouTube team that was specifically around the insights that we are hearing about YouTube in the online harassment lab so for instance um, uh, people can pay to keep that top spot that auto plays next when you're watching a video so that happens a ton to people who are targeted uh, for various reasons online where you'll be watching their video and the one that auto plays next is like so-and-so person is a fucking slutty bitch or whatever and that kind of shit is like very easily changeable where just like do not allow uh, slanderous videos or people that have a really bad reputation on YouTube to be able to have the top autoplay spot because it does really bad reputational damage. Um, and then there's a lot of other things too like um, yeah you can't sometimes your haters related channels will show up on your page and that's not something that you can edit or modify so for when you search for this person named Anita Sarkeesian, basically all of her related channels are people that vehemently hate her. So if you're somebody that's just curious and wants to learn more about the work she's doing, you're gonna have to trudge through a lot of sludge to get to what it is she's trying to say. Um, and that's something that uh, it's like a really sensitive issue for Google because they do not want to censor uh, freedom of speech and they don't want to make special cases for people. Um, 
But sometimes when it gets into this kind of thing, like they're like, you know, of course we're gonna pop up these hate results because a lot of people have watched them and upvoted them, so clearly it's providing value. But it turns out that upvotes and downvotes don't necessarily indicate quality. They can indicate all kinds of things, like just arbitrarily hating the person or whatever, or not wanting them to succeed. So there's um, there's some there's a lot of stuff in there. Um, but I care a ton about advocacy and. And then trying to talk to as many teams as I can, just about as many different types of people as I can. And then also pushing bug changes and things like that when <laughs> I hear about small things that seem like easy fixes. So kind of a non-traditional design role, I guess. <laughs> but I do design too. It's just this stuff has been the most meaningful for me and seemed to have impacted the most people. So It yeah. seems like a, a constant struggle too. I mean, it's, it's, it, it kind of parlays nicely into just online security in general, how you know, as soon as you kind of patch a hole, another crack surfaces that, that hackers and identity thieves can get through. Um, and based on your experience working in this space, where do you feel the momentum is right now? Is it kind of like in the favor of uh, people that are trying to protect online privacy and, and harassment protection, or is it in the, the momentum of the opposite, the trolls? Who's it winning? Is, oh, yeah, definitely the trolls, and they know it, and they're super happy about it. And um, it's, it's totally an issue, and part of the issue is the lack of top-down investment by companies. And this is something we've heard over and over again. Uh, Google doesn't take a stance on online harassment or this type of a thing. It says, like, we don't allow any, like, I don't know how to put it. There's, there's policies that say we are totally against this type of behavior on all the major platforms that people use, including Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, but it is so rarely reinforced. So when the policies aren't reinforced and people are finding that there's no repercussion for their actions, why the hell not create like 60 different egg accounts on Twitter and then uh, start you know, sending people of like their deceased parents or like whatever, just doing whatever you can to break somebody down if you have nothing to lose. And um, I have a hunch like um, trolling is a form of gaming and it's really prevalent in the gaming industry. So my hunch is that if we start working on this kind of twofold, like people get better about enforcing the policies from a top-down standpoint from companies, but also we start investing in younger generations when they're learning about how to behave online and when they're learning about um, kind of some of the emotional side effects, I feel like it would just nix the problem a little bit better earlier because everybody kind of forgets that they're talking to another human on the internet. <laughs> um, but there's no really elegant way right now to like remind a person of that. So we'll see what happens. But right now the trolls are totally winning and there's a lot of grassroots efforts to try to um, mitigate that, that like awareness is growing. You see new articles about this stuff all the time, but not a lot of movement has been made because um, yeah, I think people are afraid <laughs> to lose a giant user base or to be attacked by them. And so they don't want to stand up for people. Mm -hmm. That's a shame. How'd you get into the space? Great question. Um, wow. The space of online harassment or yeah. Oh man. Um, I think that's a great question. So I had a really utopic 
internet upbringing where I grew up online. I was this middle schooler who was super shy and I started creating X pages back in the day, which like is even a precursor to angel fire pages and GeoCities. Like this was some old school stuff. And it was a super safe place for me to create an identity and just like figure out who I was and how I related to other people. And I just so appreciate having that space because I didn't feel as safe like in the physical world. And so now it's really different where I was posting all kinds of stuff publicly about whatever I freaking felt like related to my personality or whatever I wanted to talk about. And I was just exploring it and it was super safe. But we're not in that era of the internet anymore and people are getting shit on <laughs> for most of the things that they're saying and it's super upsetting to me. So I spend a lot of time on Twitter following people that I admire and I was witnessing a lot of journalists who were standing up for women's rights issues or racial equality, just things like that, having serious, serious repercussions from people who disagreed and wanted to organize a campaign against them in some way. And that methodology of quieting voices was so upsetting to me because the issues are really important and it's a small, very loud minority of powerful people who are the loudest that are quieting it. And um, yeah, I just wish there was more of a safe place <laughs> for everybody on the internet to be and just accept one another. And right now it's a cesspool. <laughs> it's so dark. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's, the internet's great too, but it's, yeah, there's a lot of shit going on right now online. <laughs> I, I kind, of, kind of, along these lines, I had a hunch several years ago back when things really seemed to me to kind of hit a fever pitch of nastiness when news sites started to allow people to anonymously post comments and the sort of things that people would comment on were just terrible terrible awful things and my hunch at the time was that oh if people were forced to use their real identity that this would really just kind of like fall the wayside then before i knew it all these uh, uh websites were having integrations with facebook and twitter and people were using their real identities and still it got almost worse and so it just kind of baffled me that people were almost just as comfortable saying terrible, awful, nasty things with their, you know, their photo and their real name paired with these comments. And so I've kind of thought a lot about how, how we could make the internet, even though there is a human face and name attached to these comments, more, more human. And is there anything, uh, you, you kind of talked about it before, but is there any sort of like next step that you're seeing kind of play out in order to make the internet feel more human? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I'm interested, I guess. Uh, so today is my last day at Google. I'm going to be hiking 530 miles of the Pacific Crest Trail. And then after that, I do want to see where my head's at and explore this concept of like gentle tech, which it's a concept I made up in my head. It's not a, a real thing necessarily, but it came out of this insight and this belief that myself and other people on my team had that everybody is a good person person deep down and people just make mistakes or have bad days or and I think about the motivations of trolls and like maybe they just don't have good support systems and they need to feel some sense of power so one of the concepts I'm interesting in exploring is this idea called uh, pause where it would be a keyboard integration or something like that that would just let you set the moments of the day or the um, context that you want to just take a pause and think about what it is that you're trying to say. 
So it could be triggered by audience, like making sure that you're deliberately communicating to an audience of X number of people. It could be triggered by sentiment and the tone of what you're posting to say, hey, this doesn't sound like what you normally sound like. It could also be triggered by time of day or context, like you're at the bar right now, are you sure you wanna send this? <laughs> Maybe you just take a pause, like I'll pause it till the morning for you. So I think things like that, um, presuming that people have good intentions and that they just need to take a moment and think about it um, really inspire me. Um, so I think I'm interested in exploring these kinds of ideas, but we've also been looking at a couple of other platforms that do interventions kind of at the time of posting, like Yik Yak will say, like hold the yak or something like that. It's this anonymous platform for teens mostly that's uh, geocentric, so people in your physical location, you can like post things anonymously to them. And uh, when somebody posts something that contains a certain sentiment, then the yak will <laughs> try to have you take a pause. Um, so different people are performing interventions, but we're still kind of taking a look, especially with teens right now, about what kind of interventions would work. And turns out that it's totally different based off of who the person is, but um, seems like parental figures uh, don't work so well, like top-down stuff doesn't work so well, but just getting a nudge from a friend seems to be really effective and it coming from a good place uh, instead of being like, hey, you're doing something wrong. If it's like, hey, that doesn't sound like you, seems like a really nice approach. Um, yeah, we talked to one user recently who has a YouTube channel and somebody said, you're, you are just so freaking annoying. And uh, she replied back, I'm so sorry you feel that way. And then all of her followers dogpiled on and said, hey, that's not how we act here. That wasn't cool. And then the person actually came back and apologized and said, I had a 12 out of 10 bad day. And I think that's probably atypical, but it still is really touching to see that you can set the tone of your community. And based off of that tone, people will come and help you um, and like remind the people, ooh, remind the person that's hurting of your humanity. So those are just some ideas, but we'll see. <laughs> wow. Well, it sounds super exciting. And yeah. thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah. Um, do you have time to stick around for a really quick retro? Yeah, we should retro. Also, if you want to talk about the process of quitting, I could talk about that a little bit, if that's helpful for people. Sure. OK, awesome. Um, I don't even know where to start. Um, I don't know what to say. So today is my last day at Google. I have so mixed emotions about it. I'm really struggling with that decision because there's a lot of stuff you have to deal with working at a big company and there's a lot of trying without a lot of momentum sometimes. And I feel like I just kind of hit a block emotionally where I was like, I don't feel like this is working for me. And it was really personal and I just didn't couldn't put my finger on it. Like I got super jaded and I was just like, I am losing hope. <laughs> but at the same time, I still care so passionately, passionately about these issues that it's heartbreaking for me to leave a place that could potentially impact the conversation around it. Um, so I feel super sad, honestly, and I'm not ready to let it go. And I've been working <laughs> through the, my last hours where I'm like, oh my God, I still have to do all these logistical things, but I've been still doing home visits with people and sending out these user advocacy docs that I created and, and working on uh, 
working on this internal framework to help people think about various states of a crisis that somebody might experience and how you can make sure that your product's designed for it. So I'm super heartbroken, but I think it's one of those things where sometimes you just have to listen to yourself and take the time. And so I'm going to take some time and just see what happens. And maybe I will work for Google again someday, but um, feel like for now I just need to take a step back because things have been really intense. <laughs> yeah, and just see what happens. So I'm doing it for myself. My coworker has this saying, don't run away from something, run towards something. And ironically, when I, when I decided to leave, I didn't know what I was going to. I just had the sentiment like I'm going towards myself. And um, with that same vein, that's how I decided to do the Washington portion of the Pacific Crest Trail. And it's going to be super cool. 530 miles of easy time and a backpack in the mountains. It's going to be amazing. So I'm super grateful to even have that opportunity to take time. And it's been, it's been great. Yeah. Maybe we'll catch up with you after you come back. Yeah, that'd be awesome. That'd be really cool. Um, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen next. So it's going to be really awesome. But um, Jigsaw is a great team full of awesome people who are doing really important work. And I think that I'll definitely still keep in touch as friends. And I think I might try to maybe do some work with some of the users that we worked with, too. So we'll see. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. <laughs> yeah, totally. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. I didn't even talk about design work, I'm realizing. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter. Just yeah, we time. also do data visualizations. <laughs> you should check out Unfiltered News. It's pretty awesome. And then you can see what parts of the world are censored and which parts aren't, which is off the record. Don't, t don't. <laughs> Maybe there's another way I can put it. You can see who's talking about what and uh, understand uh, different countries' uh, reporting biases. So, for instance, this is the last thing I'll say, but it's a pretty cool example. You can visually see uh, back during the Taksim Square protests that uh, in the, this is a place, this is a public square in Turkey that everyone in the world was talking about Taksim Square except for uh, Turkey. So really interesting stuff like that. Highly recommend checking out Unfiltered News. <laughs> and um, that's it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. And then uh, there's also some of the data visualization work you can find through the Visualized Conferences website. Yeah. Well. Yeah, absolutely. CJ and I presented there. A bunch of really awesome work, too, coming out from so many people in the space of uh, journalism and data. So really, really awesome work. Yeah. All right. Thank okay. you so much. Thanks. You've been listening to Design Related with today's guest, Izzy Zahorian. Check out her blog at izzyzahorian.com. And for more information about Jigsaw, check out jigsaw.google.com. Thanks for listening and follow us on Twitter and iTunes for new episode updates.